Bo Smith. Hello, is this this is Bo Smith? How are you doing? All right. I am at the guilty party. <laughs> All right. Good afternoon, Mister Smith. How are you guys doing? Not bad. This is Thomas that you're hearing. Well, this is Sean. The other guy's Thomas, and we are glad to have you on the show, sir. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, now carrying the seal of approval from the American Beef Association. Another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. But this week, we're chucking the whole comic coverage thing aside and doing something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. As you know, if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, Guy Gardner is one of my favorite comic book characters of all time. And one of the best story arcs for the character came in issues 20 through 44 of his solo series published in the mid-1990s. During this time, we saw Guy lose his power ring, gain strange warping powers, face off with new villains and new heroes, and all in all become a character who was able to make peace with himself and who he was in the DC Universe. And today, I have my good friend, Mr. Thomas DJ. Hello, Thomas. Hello, Sean. Thank you for coming on the show. Both he and myself are going to sit down and have a little chat with the man who wrote that character that we both have such an affinity for. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my deep pleasure to welcome a man whose mere presence has been clinically proven as a cure for low testosterone, premature hair loss, and erectile dysfunction, the manliest man in comics, Mr. Bo Smith. Hello, Mr. Smith. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, Sean. Thank you. You and Thomas having me here today, and like I said, not charging me a cover charge, so I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, we are glad to have you on the show. This is something I've been wanting to talk to you about uh, for a long time, because like I said in the little opening spiel I had, I've been a fan of not only Guy Gardner, but your run on him. In fact, I think your run is one of the seriously more underappreciated uh, runs on the comic or runs on any comic during the nineties. Uh, it's just, it's just phenomenal writing. And uh, I'm kind of interested in the, the way you were going to take the character. Uh, and, and I will add that I think that it is the definitive run of Guy Gardner. I will agree with that. Well, guys, if it was manly to blush, I'd be doing that right now, <laughs> but, but my beard covers that up. So awesome. <laughs> Well, starting off, I'd like to ask, uh, how did you get your uh, start with DC Comics? What, uh, how did that come about? Well, um, at the time, I was uh, vice president of marketing for Eclipse Comics, which was a pretty noted uh, uh, publisher in the uh, early and mid-'80s, along with First Comics, Kamiko, and Pacific Comics. And uh, through that, I worked uh, PR-wise with um, a lot of the, the magazines that were out then, whether I think this is even pre-Wizard, but Comic Buyer's Guide. And there was another one called Starlog, 
which ran for quite a long time. And at that magazine, there was a, an assistant editor uh, by the name of Eddie Berganza. And Eddie and I worked with, with me connecting him with Eclipse stuff at the time. And he was a, <clears throat> he's a very good guy. We ended up being very good friends. wasn't too long afterwards that Eddie left Starlog and became an assistant editor for Kevin Dooley at DC Comics. So uh, the very first work that I had ever done for DC Comics came through Kevin Dooley, who was about my age and had come up through fandom with me. We both did a lot of uh, what they call letter hacking, letter writing, to all the uh, before the internet there were the letter columns, and I had probably I'd say close to 300 letters printed from the time I was in high school and college through uh, right up to the time that I started working for Eclipse Comics, which was in 86. And so did Kevin. Kevin was, in fact, I think there's a Supergirl issue that had a letter printed by me, Kevin Dooley, Todd McFarlane, and Mark Wade all on the same page. Wow. So I've got that issue somewhere in my collection, but I just... I uh, don't recall which one it is. It's like a, a six degrees of separation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, Kevin and I had always kept in conversation. When Eddie came on as his assistant, um, they had an opening for a story in Green Lantern Quarterly. And Kevin gave, just gave me a call up and said, hey, would you like to uh, throw a story that way? I said, sure, yeah, I'd like to. And I sent him a pitch, and I said, do you want an established character? He goes, and you got to again. You got to remember, this was the early '90s, and there was not the uh, tight regime at DC Comics that there is today. It was a lot looser. It was a lot more fun, and the focus was on the characters, the stories, and uh, you know, just having some fun. So he goes, "Now, if you want to kind of create one," I said, "Yeah, I, I kind of would." And so I kind of made that Probert the bad one, and he ended up. Without really saying it, he was actually kind of like the first Green Lantern in when the Guardians were trying to uh, establish what they actually wanted to do with Green Lanterns and, and sectors and this, that, and the other. They, this was their kind of prequel to where they didn't exactly get things right, and Probert was kind of a case of that. So it's a very interesting uh, Green Lantern tale in the fact that it... it predates a lot of stuff, and Probert um, was, a, was a lot of fun. It was a character that I enjoyed doing. Enrique Villagran uh, was the artist I worked on that, and Enrique and I have worked together pretty much ever since then on a lot of different stuff, Wine on Earth and currently 200 People to Kill at Dark Horse. But that is my first work at DC, and luckily enough it was, again, part of the Green Lantern heritage so that when uh, Guy Gardner became available, um, it wasn't too much of a, a giant leap of faith for them to kind of turn the keys over to me. Well, what I liked about the character of Probert is, especially in that uh, story that you wrote, he was kind of uh, setting up where you would go with the character of uh, Guy Gardner. He There was a lot of uh, similarities that you would see in his character that I thought uh, you uh, eventually fleshed out a bit more into the character of Guy Gardner. Well, that was that was part of the purpose, and uh, to be honest with you, um, if if time would have allowed at the time with the run on Guy Gardner, uh, was setting that up to where Probert was Guy's mentor, 
uh, we were, there would have been some, I guess you'd call untold stories of Guy as a basically a Green Lantern rookie, and it was Probert who kind of took him under his hairy armpit and uh, you know showed him the ropes, and that's what affected not only Guy's attitude uh, towards the Green Lantern Corps, but as a hero as well. And Probert was to play a major part as as his mentor. Makes sense. Well, um, we might as well go ahead and move on to the uh, Guy Gardner series as a whole. Um, you started out coming on right after Chuck Dixon, who I know you've worked with and you've praised in, uh, in many different uh, forms, many different uh, forums. And uh, you came in right after he finished up his Yesterday Sin story arc on Guy Gardner, and you came in right in the middle of the whole Emerald Twilight thing. <laughs> yeah. Ha- how were you able to, I mean, because your jumping on point there was essentially the death of Hal Jordan, or not really the death, the, the turning of Hal Jordan from a hero to a villain. How did you uh, kind of deal with that in the book? Well, um, when uh, Chuck had to leave Guy Gardner, because he was, at that time was just had too much work at DC with the Batman books, that was increasing, increasing. And and if you know Chuck, he, the Batman books, that's that's what he's always wanted to do. It's just like at Marvel, he's always wanted to do the Fantastic Four. So I'm sure at any point when that would be offered, he would drop most anything. But he was nice enough to suggest me to Kevin and to Eddie, who were the editors on Guy Gardner. And since both of them already had a relationship with me before that, they were, oh, yeah, the, yeah, we, we definitely. That's Again, it's not a great leap of faith. We, we know Bowen's work. So... Chuck did warn me. He goes, "Hey, you know, they're going to call you up. They'll probably offer this to you, but I got to warn you, you're <laughs> you're you're getting jumped right in the middle of uh, an event, you know." And I said, "Well, that's that's all good." And he goes, "Also, he goes, the sales on Guy Gardner aren't great." He goes, "So if you can get a four or five issues out of it before they cancel the book, then you know, consider yourself lucky and stuff." And I said, "No, yeah, no, I appreciate that." And Kevin and, and Eddie were very upfront at the time when they, they contacted me that, you know, they said, Hey, sales on this book aren't, aren't great. And, but you know, Hey, let's, let's see how far we can go. And, you know, who knows, maybe you can even get sales to come up, which was to be honest with you, everyone was doubtful at the time. So I came in on 20 and I was dumped right in. Kevin and Eddie were a big help as far as getting me up to speed of what was happening. And part of the, Almost uh, at cancellation numbers, i got to be honest with you, that helped me out a lot in the fact that I came in with I've got nothing to lose, so there wasn't as much pressure as there would have been under uh, regular circumstances or coming in on a, a high-selling book. So uh, I always looked at it as, hey, I'm, I'm going to have a good time here and try to get away with doing as much stuff as I've always wanted to do with some of these characters as possible. And again, it was not the tight regime it is today. So, uh, being under the radar, I was able to get a lo- get away with a lot of that. And I don't mean that in a criminal sense, but uh, but in a a fun creative sense, I got exactly. to get away with a lot of stuff. Right. Now, now, one of the things that both hmm. Sean and I have noticed almost immediately in that first issue is that you start setting up this concept of guy almost has this John Wayne slash Clint Robertson. Uh, Western hero, very stoic, uh, a man of his word, 
and uh, a man who does not speak unless he has something really to say. Was that in your mind right from the start? Part of that was, yes, and and part of, of what drove me uh, as far as goals with Guy Gardner as a character was, and, and I'll be very blunt and very honest, I was really, really tired as a reader and as a creator of seeing Guy as a DC joke, a butt end of uh, one-punch Batman scene from, uh, you know, Justice League. I mean, you know. Amen. That that was the the bowl haircut that was funny you know for that but the what I would call the wizard frat boy society of fandom at that point seemed to just not want to let that uh, uh, that horse uh, take a rest you know they were going to beat it until it was gone and and continue to beat it after that and I, mean, I was just people... I was tired of it and I wanted to make a change I wanted the guy to become uh, as you put it, a man of his word, but a hero in a true sense of, I'm not here to be uh, a frat boy. It's not a look-at-me world. Look what I can do. I'm not a jerk. Uh, I can see where I've been taken as a jerk, but you know, until you get to know me, have a couple of beers with me, then you're going to find out what I really stand for. And that was that, and to make Guy Gardner a likable character were were two of my goals and when you're a writer whether it's in comics film television whatever the key to any story is making your character likable the supporting characters likable even the bad guy likable in some sense because if you don't then the readers aren't going to have an emotional investment in that character they don't have an emotional investment in that character the super event the galactic uh, uh, situation, the conflict isn't going to mean anything if they don't care what happens to that character. So if you have a likable character, which is what I wanted to do with Guy Gardner, then it doesn't matter if he's going out with uh, for ice cream with fire or he's fighting Sinestro man-to-man on the planet Jupiter. You are going to give a crap of what's happened, what's going to happen to those characters. I mean, people seem to forget that when he was created by Gardner Fox way back when, Guy was a social worker, he was a teacher, and he was a smart guy. Yes. And I love the fact that, that both you and Chuck Dixon brought that back and reminded us that, yeah, this is not just some stumble bum, I could have been a contender, punch drunk, wahoo. And that's where, unfortunately, he was, he was being led and, and I know that uh, for other writers that, that may have, oh, this is easy. I'll just, you know, he'll continue to be a joke. And, you know, it's not, as you put it, that's not how he started out, and that's not who he was. And I, I really felt that, I, you know, I was going to take Chuck's lead on that as well to show the readers, you know, not only what this character was, but who he can be and, and what he can also transform back into. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the, the first issue uh, was the relationship that Guy had with the heroes. Now, some of them, like Colin, uh, not Colin Farrell, I keep Colin <laughs> sorry, Farron Colos and uh, yeah. Alan Scott Green Lantern, he was kind of dismissive of him. But in that issue, he had a really nice moment with Wonder Woman. And I, I really enjoyed the fact that he recognized the heroism in Wonder Woman. And I, I've heard things, maybe apocryphal, of things that were supposed to go on between uh, 
Guy and Wonder Woman. I, I want to know if you wanted to touch on some of that. I mean, this is a sort of stuff that I think that you were hoping to write, it, or was there anything going on with that? Well, it was, again, um, I was, I came into DC at a very, very good time when there was a lot of creative freedom and there weren't the uh, restraints that there are now. And there are a few, there's a handful of characters at DC, at Marvel, big places like that, that that I've always wanted to write. Some of them are, are big characters, iconic characters, but a lot of them, most of them, are what someone would call your second and third string characters. Well, Guy Gardner was one, but Wonder Woman's also a character that you know I'd always want to, uh, I thought needed um, a, not a change so much, but a clarification. And I was hoping at that point to start using Wonder Woman in that with Guy Gardner and the fact that, that every, again, everybody thought Guy was a frat boy and if he's dealing with Wonder Woman, whether it's a compelling story situation or just hanging out to Justice League, that you know, he would be, hey, nice butt, you know, that kind of comment. Well, you know, that to me is, is not Guy Gardner and because with Wonder Woman, I always felt that he, as a character, had respect first. He knew what she knows, what she does, how she thinks, and what a true warrior and hero she is. So he has always deeply respected that. He may not have come out and said it this, that, and the other, but he was going to start saying it to that point. Which, again, <laughs> you know, I didn't know how long I was going to have on this book, so I wanted to establish that at least in the first issue and have that moment where he he tells her in his own uh, shucks and shuffle kind of way. And also, Wonder Woman, being as smart as she is, she knows that. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I was able, uh, hopefully, to get across in both characters, there is a mutual respect. He respects her because of what she's done, and she also could see through all the bravado and everything that had come before. She knew what lied within uh, God's warrior soul, so to speak. And could see that, and where others in that issue, let's say the Ray and, and Captain Adam and others, might not have, or and, and this would come out. So, and I got to be honest with you, as far as setting things up, I wanted to have Woman Wonder Woman guest star in the book occasionally, not not in anything where they're really going toe to toe and fighting things, but more on a social kind of thing. And at some point, I wanted to build up the story to where there was a situation where Guy and Wonder Woman, for the sake of public appearances, had to get married. And this would have been in a story. And what we would have had is this really, to the general public, an odd couple kind of a thing where, you know, they, they see guys a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal with Wonder Woman, the icon of DC Comics, all that, you know, what womanhood and everything should stand for. And everyone would think, oh, this is a time bomb that's going to tick. But what I would have come out with is eventually, you know, yeah, they would reveal to everybody this was just for X purpose uh, that we did this. But Guy and Wonder Woman would both part from that with this this true uh, feelings for each other that, you know, who knows, could possibly one day uh, go a little further than that. Uh, but at, at, at one point, yeah, we, we did what we were supposed to, blah, 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 but there did be this bittersweet parting, 
and feelings for each other at the end. And also it would help, again, to build not only respect for Guy Gardner as a character, but to make Wonder Woman an interesting character for the readers. Uh, I've just, you know, seen for decades, I've seen the character go through so many changes. And my bottom line with Wonder Woman has always been, if you can tell me what's on her iPod, then she's going to be an interesting character to read. You can't just go, uh, she's an Amazon, stories about the, you know, being on Paradise Island, this, that, you know, no, no one has yet to create a personality for her for the readers to uh, grab onto. And to be honest with you, that was going to be my sneaky back door into hopefully at some point writing Wonder Woman. That would have been that would have been a great thing, you know, because I have to agree with you. Yeah, it's nice to see Wonder Woman fight the uh, the ancient sort of Greek myths and all that. But yeah. yeah, if if she doesn't have much of a personality, it's hard to latch on to her as a character. So yeah, that would have been yeah. Again, any time that DC could have picked you up to do more writing for them, I think that would have always been a good thing. Well, I, you know, I did get, and it's another frustrating point. Uh, not to get off the track with Guy Gardner, but I got my ch- chance to write Wonder Woman uh, with my oh, with my my very very good friend Eduardo Barreto, the mm. artist. Uh, we got signed on to do Wonder Woman versus Xena as a prestige book. Oh, neat! And Goodness. I wrote the entire script. Eduardo penciled it, and we decided uh, as a story. I wanted to do that. As if you ever watched any of the, the old Xena television show, every once in a while they would have a almost comedic, lighthearted episode. Mm-hmm. And that's what this was. So it was Wonder Woman, Wonder Girl, Gabrielle, Gabrielle and um, uh, Xena. And I, I, to be very, very honest with you, and this is no conceit or anything like that, I, I honestly, to this day, believe it's one of the funniest and well-written scripts I've ever done. I've, I've showed it around to a lot of people after the fact and stuff. I sent it to uh, Gail Simone and I are friends. I sent it to Gail, mm-hmm. and she wrote, she goes, why didn't they publish this? What is wrong? That... I mean, she was, you know, she appreciates humor, and there was just enough in it. It wasn't slapstick. It was, it was lighthearted, you know, action-adventure. And uh, Eduardo, oh, my gosh. His artwork on that was just unbelievable. Well, that sounds like it would be just printing money, especially if you know yeah. put out during the time when Xena was at its height in popularity. Because... And it, that was the time. But oh. it was also the time, uh, and this is not meant in a derogatory term or anything, but that was also the time Dan DiDio stepped in at D.C. And uh. Dan's first things, in which I've got the letter here somewhere that came down from D.C., is there's not going to be any humor in the DC universe, we're you know basically we're getting very serious. <laughs> we're getting very serious. Um, you know things are, are are you know. And here again, I wrote the script. They'd paid me. They paid Eduardo. They basically said, "No, we're just we're not going to do that." And I think there were a few other series by other people that had some uh, lightheartedness to them. Those were uh, set aside as well. If you so, only knew. That was a huge I, disappointment for me. <laughs> oh my goodness. And let me tell you something. I would have paid I would pay double if you had as an undercard 
Steve Trevor versus Autolycus. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, that would have been so amazing. But yeah, that's one of the things that uh, on this show and a lot of, uh, on a lot of uh, these comic book podcasts that people have mentioned is that the fun and the humor have sort of gone out of not only DC Comics, well, not so much as Marvel. I mean, the Civil War thing wasn't very fun, but a lot of comics have lost that feeling of fun that you so intensely brought into these comics. And uh, the the really fun thing that I want to get to now is the the Naba Jungle storyline, where you we had the end of Emerald Twilight, how or Hal has gone all parallax and he's all evil. Guy's lost his ring. He's been battered. He's lost an eye. He's bruised and beaten in the hospital, but things are going bad and he knows he has to do something. So you write the Naba jungle storyline. Go ahead and uh, tell us about that. Well, um, again, as you mentioned, after all the parallax, everything was, they told us we are deconstructing the green lantern Corps. There's not going to be any more, you know, there's, they, they were very adamant about that. And yeah, editorially they told us this will either go to where uh, if the readers take off on it, yeah, we, we may not bring Green Lanterns back for as long, basically, as long as sales are high. If sales aren't, you know, in a year now, we'll, we'll bring it all back again, which they eventually did, and, and you figured. But at that point, again, I had total freedom. They go, well, we, you know, Guy, Guy Gardner is going to be Guy Gardner Warrior, and uh, what do you want to do? Well, my first, I was working with Mitch Bird as the artist who, Mm. I'd admired Mitch's work since he did Cat and Mouse. I believe it was Silverline. It was a small comic book uh, publisher. He just has this amazing, organic look that is his style and his style alone. So I was very stoked to be working with Mitch. Mitch and I were friends. But um, with uh, with this, Mitch and I sat and talked, and, and both of us really wanted to take this opportunity to make Guy Gardner um, just just true action adventure, no superpowers at all. Uh, and we wanted to stress the fact, well, you know, Green Lantern uh, Corps being de- deconstructed. Well, Guy was going, yeah, well, hell, I don't need that ring. That's fine with me. And it was his quest to find out the true heroism that, that you know, uh, his heart bled. And this was going to be his quest to find out. He had no idea. And that was our thing. We wanted to do this as a modern, and I'll say Indiana Jones, but actually it's, it's, it's a pulp adventure action guy. Yes. And we brought in Buck Wargo and the Monster Hunters. That was a supporting cast that I created. Buck Wargo and the Monster Hunters was basically my uh, cowboy version of Doc Savage. Yes. And his group. Absolutely. And because I wanted Guy to have his, uh, to me at that point, I also felt comics weren't uh, creating enough new original characters, whether they be in supporting cast, villains, and heroes. And a lot of creators at that time were holding back because they said, well, why should I create something for Marvel and DC if I'm not going to get a piece of it? And I understand that. But at that time, we had equity contracts. So some of these characters, like Buck Wargo and the Monster Hunters, the villain Sledge that I created, things like that, I had uh, equity contracts with, similar to what Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan had with the creation of Bane. At that time, DC was doing that, which was great. But again, after the regime changed, those started getting cut off. And really, if you look, as time went on and through the years, a lot of those characters 
that people had equity in were they were either shoved under rugs, killed off, so that you know, um, well, you know, you figure business, so mm-hmm. we don't have to share ownership on this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, so that with the Nava Jungle, the war, uh, the Water of the Warriors, that was where I wanted to head. But editorially, um, the DC told us, you know, well, that's this is great and stuff, but they were really seriously afraid that sales, you know, which were mediocre at the time, weren't going to go up because he didn't have any superpowers. He's got to have superpowers of some sort. And I, to be honest with you, I argued back and forth with uh, Eddie and Kevin on that. It wasn't so much Eddie and Kevin. I think it came from just group editing as well, that when they would have group meetings, hey, you got you got guy superpowers yet. He's got to have superpowers. And because Eddie and, and Kevin were good player coach editors because they always supported and uh, backed us on a lot of stuff. But bottom line is, I also realized it was uh, their sandbox, and I was playing with their toys. I've never lost sight of that. So I said, okay, you know, we'll we'll do powers, but wanted to do something that was original, but still keeping with what we wanted to take it. And I, I, to be honest with you, I can't remember the exact details, but at the time, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers were big on television, and DC kept saying you know, give them something, you know, that the kids will like, that everyone will like, that might even morph in. Can you make him morph things? You know, that just the morphing part is all they took. And I was <laughs> gritting my teeth and trying to keep from crapping in my pants. And I said, yeah, well, we'll think of something. So Mitch and I got together. And Mitch's art, as I said before, is so organic. Oh, yeah. He goes, let me, let me send you some sketches, Bo. He goes, kind of some ideas. So he sent these sketches to me that were just amazing. And they, what they were, they were sketches of Guy's arm changing into a tomahawk, changing into a bow and arrow. We, so we started talking. We said, yeah, how about if we have it where his Guy Gardner warrior, he has <clears throat> the powers of the greatest warriors of all time. But we wanted to keep it on a, a primal, more primitive basis. So it would be a sword, a bow and arrow, a tomahawk. Things like that, that that you know would not get out of control. Our main goal with him, if we had to change him into superpowers, we wanted him to be, as far as fighting, hand-to-hand combat fighting ability, probably the only person in the whole DC universe that would be better would be Batman, because we you know you can't step over the icons of Batman and Superman in the same aspect in full power uh, warrior form. The only person stronger, just pure strength, would be Superman. So you still have those two at the top of the totem pole, but slowly but surely, Mitch and I wanted to make Guy, you know, a real force to be reckoned with in the DC Universe without making a big deal of it. Just slowly, subtly, you know, and the next thing you know, if we got five, six more issues here, next thing you know, everybody knows just how powerful Guy Gardner is. Mm-hmm without any trumpets blowing because i always believe if let's say you want to lose weight well a crash diet is going to be fine and dandy but that's temporary you're going to gain that weight back the best way to do it is gradually so if we could gradually power guy up and on the respect meter with the dc and the dc readers we figured it would stick longer awesome uh 
let's see i know the next thing that came after the novel jungle thing pretty much immediately after that zero hour started mm-hmm. and <clears throat> that actually was the place where the morphing thing kind of got out of hand because i oh. believe <laughs> it was actually in the zero hour book uh whoever was writing that uh was it dan jurgens i think i and, think dan yes. but a lot of people had yeah a lot of people had had hands in had that. their hands yeah and that was the first place where you saw Guy actually morphing a gun. And I think in uh, issue 24 of uh, Guy Gardner Warrior, you actually mentioned that uh, or, or kind of hinted to that, that Guy could pull guns out of his hands and all that stuff. And I, I don't know whether that was a sort of you kindly pointing out that this wasn't exactly where I wanted to go, but I, it's been done. So I'm going to just run with it. It was it, it, it through DC. They they said, yeah, we we we'd like to see. Well, they wanted you know huge howitzers and things like that. And I was just uh uh-huh. Again, we went back and forth. But again, it was their toy. And I said, yeah, we could, we'll we'll do it. But it's you know we wanted to keep it kind of small. And to be honest with you, I got to make a note about this time. Luckily enough, about issue twenty four twenty five. Guy Gardner sales started picking up, and I mean, uh, again, I'm not. If I remember right, when I took over, the sales were probably around fourteen thousand, probably about twenty four, twenty five, something like that. At one point, we were getting up to forty to sixty thousand, and at that time, of course, now that's huge. But back yeah. then, you know, but that was a big deal. And all of a sudden, we we found out other editors and other creators were wanting to borrow Guy Gardner in their books during these events. And that is when the morphing powers, when everyone borrows it, they're skimming what's going on, but they're not exactly really reading the the Bible on what's going on. So all of a sudden, guy was morphing chainsaws, egg beaters, uh, you know, you name it, he was doing it. And we knew if he ever got popular, that's what would happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Sadly. So, (laughs) but yeah, so it was always, at least I always had our book to kind of try to rein that back in that way it could be said that you know we well i saw him in this uh connecting book of zero hour and he was able to do this and well that was i wasn't i was asleep at the wheel and you know someone else was babysitting you know so uh you know tried to explain it that we tried to keep it as as close to the vest as we could in the regular book. But but sales began to really uh, pick up, and we were pretty stoked. And sales did not really start to drop off till after Mitch left the book, and we had a series of, and they were all talented guys, but we were, every issue was almost a different artist at that point. And anytime you do that on any book, you are going to lose sales. And, and sure enough, Paul, I'm not trying to get ahead of you here, but probably by... Uh, the late issues in the 30s, we had, mm-hmm. you know, jump skipped and hopped, and again sales started uh, diminishing at that point. So by I think the time of mm, the late 30s or something, I guess, yeah, we're probably going to have to cancel it. Sales are down to, uh, you know, whatever it was, 30,000 something like that. Which back then, you know, they would cancel a book. Yeah. And um, so again, it was a blessing. It was a curse in the fact that. I also, again, got a new shot of freedom because all oh, this book's getting ready to get canceled. They they let loose with what I could do. So once again, I got to do a lot of things 
that you normally wouldn't get to do. And then finally, for the last issue and stuff, 44, uh, again, I'm not getting, trying to get ahead. We were able to bring Mitch back for that, you know, yeah, and final issue. But I, I, it, yeah. I agree with you. You know, having the various different artists, you know, they did try and keep a continuity with the art, but, uh, you know, yeah, the credit to Mark Campos, who did uh, a mm-hmm. good job at trying to emulate Mitch Bird, having Mitch Bird on for the, the final issue definitely brought the series back and brought him. Oh, and, and, and Mark, Mark is a great guy, always made deadlines in this, but you also got to remember at that time period, Image Comics was huge then, mm-hmm. and, and Mark, you know, again, young guy trying to get more work, was uh, influenced by what we used to call the, the classic image style. And that's I was actually VP for image at that point, so no one knew it more than I did. But, you know, which was all glitzy, not much storytelling, this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, he was a great guy and everything, but, it, again, it just wasn't right for the book at that point. Well, that's one of the things that I feel that makes your book stand out from from the image, what I like to call the imagization era, is that a lot of those comics during the 90s are kind of lumped into this idea of the big guns, big boobs, pouches mm-hmm. type thing. And the thing that uh, your comics did was it took those tropes, it took those ideas, but uh, it backed it up with really good storytelling. So not only were you getting the sort of flashy artwork that you would expect in the image comics, but you were getting a really interesting story and really great characterizations behind that as well. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. And uh, to the artists that, at that when Mitch left, the two artists I pushed for to become the regular, you know, here, here are two artists I would love to have, you know, you know approach DC on this, you know, are you one uh, are you open to? One was Amanda Connor who at the time oh, was Lord. doing Gargoyles at Marvel. And I'd seen some of uh, Amanda's pencils and, and raw pencils and stuff like that. Xerox is just through the industry at the time. And this was you know, before her career really shot off. And I begged them to bring Amanda on because I could see she would have been just, she would have captured all everything that we were doing with Guy Gardner so perfectly. And so I begged and begged on that, but, but that didn't happen with DC and, the other person that I tried to get after that was Scott Eaton. And Scott had done some work for, for DC. This year. And Scott was another one that would have been perfect. And, uh, you know, that, again, it just, you know, uh, that didn't, they were looking at that time for a more image style. So, you know, I was uh, fighting a losing battle on that. And then one of the things that was really unique about your run on the book was, of course, the setting of Warriors the Bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, and it was such a, a unique setting that it lasted long after the book. It was kind of like the legacy of the book because it was it was around in many other books for years later until, of course, a certain fun sucker came in around 2001. <laughs> but we're not going to talk about him. Um, so um, was that always part of your plan or is that something that came out organically as you went through the Nava jungle to the warrior phase? We, we wanted with Buck Wargo's Buck Wargo was basically one of the, if not the richest guys in the world. So he was always going to be guys funding for all this kind of stuff, but it was funding in a, as we like to put it in a doc savage manly kind of way. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. You know, well, we're we're gonna buy some world peace here. No, it's, hey, let's open a bar. Let's you know have some place 
where everybody with superpowers can hang out. And and at the time, uh, the Hard Rock Cafe was was huge. And Eddie Berganza, our editor on it, said, well, you know, can we give him a place like that? And I said, because at first we were talking more of a hole-in-the-wall kind of a thing. Right. And then I started thinking, well, with bucks, money, why not make it a place where all anybody with superpowers can come and, yeah, there'll be a public place, but there'll also be this, this not headquarters, but this great social club for anyone with superpowers because my ulterior motive of that was not only to give a guy a cool place to hang out with Buck Orga and the Monster Hunters, but it was a great place for me to start corralling all the misfit toys of DC Comics mm-hmm. because I wanted to, you know, bring in Wildcat as a regular character because yes. that's, you know, a favorite of mine. I uh, love Wildcat, yeah. Lead from the Metal Men. Uh, we were already doing it with some of them, but Lady Blackhawk was another one. You know, during Zero oh, yes. Hour, I got to bring her back into the DC universe. So it was going to start being my place for all of them to come hang out and be regular characters. Bawana Beast has always been one of my favorite DC characters, and that actually was where I was wanting to springboard his return because I have a whole uh, notebook full of things to bring him back. So basically all it is is I ran out of time, you know, with issue 44 being the last one. If I would have been able to continue on, oh, you wouldn't believe the, the havoc I would have wreaked with, with bringing characters back. But that was the purpose, to give God a cool place. And Brad Gorby, who I co-created uh, uh, Parts Unknown, a creator-owned book of mine, with Brad had was the person that uh, we brought in to design Warriors. So, and in fact, somewhere here I have all the old Xeroxes of all the designs of of warriors that he did. Some of them they used, and I believe it was in the Guy Gardner Annual. I think they reprinted some of them, but he did tons of them. And they're just amazing. In fact, Brad is also the one who uh, I had designed Buck Wargo and the Monster Hunters as far as their looks and stuff as well. One of the things that I love about the Warrior Bar-centric issues is that they serve as a snapshot of what the DC Universe was like at that time. I mean, yep. if you've listened to the episodes Sean and I have done about those issues, we're, we're like looking through them going like, wait a minute, is that the man called Fate over here? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, and you brought, you were able to not only give voice to a lot of the big characters, and, and their Superman showed up, uh, let's see. You also had minor characters that may not have made crossovers into the DC universe. Like you brought in John Constantine and Swamp Thing pretty yep. much over from the Vertigo uh, part of DC Comics into this book. So uh, that Judo you're... Master was in it. We, yes. You know, some of the Trump, Judo we, Master. We tr- I tried to hit every hit a little bit of everybody. Well, and that was one of the great things that uh, we just really enjoyed about that. It was that you were able to get all this diverse group of DC characters in this one place. And it it perfectly worked because you said, as you said, you made it a place where the heroes of the DC universe could come and actually hang out and enjoy themselves. And it was just an amazing concept and it really worked well. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Everybody, DC really got behind that. For that 29th issue, they, uh, I suggested that they send out to uh, all the re- comic book retailers in the direct market invitations to the opening of Warriors, and they did. They sent out these really nice, they're, they're quite the collector's items now, but these really nice uh, uh, invitations to the opening of Warriors, and they sent that to all the uh, 
the retailers. They uh, it was Eddie Berganza's idea for the double gate opening cover, and mm-hmm. then the uh, variant cover, which back then you know that was before the variant cover craze. Oh yeah, the uh, Nighthawks take off. Yes. Yeah. And Eddie thought of those, which were just you know amazing, and and I got to say that issue, the 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 icing on that cake and, and the drive behind that was Phil Jimenez, who I was so lucky to work with on that because Phil, I was writing the script, you know, I was writing full script, and, you know, one panel's got eight characters, another one's got nine, and I think, oh, man, I feel so bad for Phil. He's going to draw these characters. He would write back to me, Bo, I hope you don't mind. I added two more characters to this. Hey, Bo, can I add (laughs) these guys to this? Phil was a dream. We've we've been very, very, very good friends ever since then, and it's because Phil has this this unbridled love of comic books and superhero comic books, and and he has never lost that. And it was such a pleasure for me to be my twelve year old self, and at the same time, Phil to be his twelve year old self, and get to do that book. We just had. The best time, and if you, when you look through that, you can see so much detail. Uh, he he captured the expressions of these characters, the the words that I put into their mouth. He was able to translate into their personalities as far as how they looked, and it, 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 that issue is just uh, nothing but wonderful eye candy to look at, even to this day. One of the things that I remember, I think it was in the issue 44 in the in the letters column where everyone basically said their goodbyes. Yeah. At the time, Phil Jimenez wrote, issue 29 was one of the few pieces of art that I actually can look back on and say that I am proud of. And I <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with that. That That is some stuff that is just amazing to look at and the new, number of characters that he puts in. It's almost, it is almost George Perez's Crisis on Infinite Earths level. Yeah. I'm, I have to agree with you. I have to agree with you there. He, he um, just Phil was just you know, and continued. I support his career uh, a lot, and and it's just that was just a true milestone in my comic book career right there. That issue alone. Um, you somewhere around here you had the Capital Punishment mm-hmm. crossover with uh, Ra Mars's uh, Green Lantern. And the thing that has been striking is, you know, we're now in the post-Guy Gardner era in the, the podcast, and it seemed like Ron was taking great pains to keep the continuity with your guy, unlike other people who was, were using him at the time. I mean, how much communication did you and Ron have during that time? None. Um, oh. That was – Ron and I have met probably – Twice in all these years, uh, we've been to the same conventions and maybe, maybe talk for two, three minutes at the most at a con. You know, hey, how you doing? This and here, that was, and to this day, uh, I, I'm still very, very impressed. Ron actually was was another one of the writers. You know, if we we're doing a crossover, this and the other, who I could always tell, oh, gee, yeah, hell, he read this stuff. He really, Ron pays. Attention, Ron is like Mark Wade in the fact that he's a true comic book fan as well as a creator, and he he enjoys stuff, he reads it, and I was super impressed and, and very honored that uh, you know that again, like you said, he kept things at least 
you know, as close as what we were wanting to do in our book. He he got it. Let's put it that way. And uh, I always admired him for uh, uh, being super, more than super respectful, but adding extra layers even to the stuff that we were doing in our book. Yeah, that's the one thing that I did notice. And uh, after the Guy Gardner series went away, it could have been so easy for DC to just devolve Guy into the same sort of jokey character that he was kind of brought up with in the JLI series. But writers like Ron Mars were able to continue what you had set up with the character of Guy Gardner and actually expand on that. And I'm glad to, uh, you know, even though that you didn't really have all that much of a relationship with him, I'm glad to know that Ron Mars was able to take what you had and and move it forward and and keep with the character. Because Well, that's why Ron is such a... Uh, uh, he's a really respectful writer. He's a really, really good writer, but I mean, he's respectful to not only the stuff that came from, let's say, even when the, the comics were created, and he's, he's, he's kept those traditional uh, values and stuff, but he also, you know, continues to modernize it along the way, with, again, without being disrespectful to anything that's come before. And that's truly something to be admired these days because a lot of stuff is just, oh, screw this, you know, that's past gone, now I'm going to do this. And uh, Ron has a, re- a huge respect for comics. And I've always, like I said, I've always admired him for that. That's for sure. Uh, you know, which is another neat thing that I found out later on is during my run on Guy Gardner and stuff, uh, there were these two guys in Michigan reading the book at that time who were also uh, ended up being very respectful and that was jeff johns and his brother <laughs> when jeff told me he, he called and when he was uh, when they were getting ready to change guy gardner you know they were bringing back all the green lantern stuff and they were going to kind of fade the warrior stuff out he again there there was true respect jeff called and said told me hey here's what we're doing we're going to change things back you know i've got a couple ideas and he went through a series of phone calls we tried to find a way that would transition without uh, disrespecting the readers who enjoyed the Guy Gardner Warrior Run, which he was one of those people, which really meant a lot to me. And, and years later, Gail said the same thing. She goes, oh, it was one of my you know, favorite books to read. You know, I just enjoyed that so well. And she's another who uh, treated Guy Gardner in the few times that she's fooled with him. And with his supporting characters, with with nothing but respect, and yeah, you know. she used Joe, in fact, in, in yeah. a couple of her stories, and she used Sledge in, um, oh gosh, supervillain book. Um, oh, oh, Secret, Secret uh, Six. Yeah, Secret Six. I'm sorry, and she, I mean, that you know, that personally made my day, and um, you know, but Jeff, uh, you know, was a reader when he was still going to school in Michigan and stuff of, of my guy Gardner run and. For him to call back years later and then say, hey, we want to make this transition, you know, this is the way it you know, goes, which I, I knew, but he didn't have to do that. And to be honest with you, not very many people would. It would just, you know, okay, these are our characters at D.C., this is what we're going to do. But Jeff made a point to make a series of phone calls, and, and uh, I really got a kick out of that. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, that's, I always hoped one day to – see guy gardner warrior return whether it's in the uh whether it's guy himself or joe you know because that was always part of uh, that was left out or i knew that they would always bring back the green lantern course so it was kind of a 
uh, a small backup plan that, well, Joe can always take over being a warrior. Mm-hmm. So, who knows? That that door's always open. You never know what might happen. Um, speaking of, you know, characters that you created that unfortunately kind of went by the wayside, I want to talk uh, near the end of the run, you introduced the character of Martika. Mm-hmm. And she was really sort of, uh, you could tell from the story that she was supposed to be, if the series were to be ongoing, to be sort of the main foil for Guy in it. What were some of the things that you wanted to do with Martika, and what was sort of uh, the plan that you had for her, and where where were you hoping on going with that? Well, with Martika, I was hoping, yeah, again, um, part of my thing was to build Guy a rogues gallery of villains, of new villains, uh, original villains, which Sledge, Martika, the Black Serpent, uh, you know, it goes on. And I wanted her to be, how can I put it, she's a bad guy, but yet She's not, you know, again, you've got to make, as I said before, you got to make every character completely, you know, there's got to be likability with every one of them. And we had, a, you know, I had a bigger storyline for her as far as personality-wise, but she would be this really, sinister is not even the word. She has a sinister agenda, but it's her own agenda. And she's not above doing things, but still, she she really had this liking her guy and she really did want guy to be her guy but he was going to have to kind of like you know uh, overlook some of her semi-criminal ways and and sociopathic ways that she had uh she was kind of like going to be his cat woman like cat woman is to batman only on a with a little meaner streak let's put it that way and that was always my goal i mean she was going to be no one to screw with whether you're in Guy Gardner's universe or if someone else was to borrow her, but yet at the same time, she was not pure evil, and uh, on occasions you were going to see her go up against pure evil bad guys and basically play the role of someone that was good, but once that conflict was over, you know, then you're going to see again, once in comparison to real good guys, she's not that good. Yeah, she so maybe very... a better comparison would be to like Magneto or uh, yes. Emma yes. Frost. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's very good. That's very good, and that's what I was hoping to build her uh, into because I was going to have her save guys bacon a couple of times where she didn't really need to or have to, but to show that you know she had this uh, affection for guy. Well, like... It was a true affection. Again, but not to the, you know, know, not to the it was to the point where, if she thought, let's say, fire was getting a little too close, yeah, she'd try to kill her, <laughs> you know, and not think too much about it. Well, what was the since you since you brought up fire, and it was obviously you were you were setting BB up as a major supporting character. Yep. Um, towards the very tail end of the run, before it became you know curtailed very quickly. Um, what was your thoughts on that? Was that going to be just a full-on romance, or was it going to be something else? It was. It was definitely going to because she and Guy had their problems, as as you know, it was always mm-hmm. shown before, uh, especially where Ice was concerned, because she was very protective of Ice being best friends, and and you know, again, she had dealt with Guy in the frat boy, bullheaded days uh, when he was Guy Gardner jerk, and I wanted to. Also, 
through emotion show that you know that relationship changed and from their one night stand and, and, and things that happened at Christmas uh, onward to where uh, my goal was to have them into a relationship and have be really care for guy and guy really care for her and then that's when we were going to bring ice back and then have that serious uh, love triangle problem at that point and, and may I just say that, that I think the way you handled the whole, you know, bucket of eggs that you were handed about the whole thing with ice, I, I really thought was wonderful. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, especially in uh, issue 39, the Christmas issue, where where you allowed Guy and B to get together and mm-hmm. realize that ice was the one thing that... Uh, you know, was the commonality between the two of them? I thought it was yeah, really they great. They truly both loved ice, and and that became the the real bond that brought them together. Mm-hmm. I also want to comment on that issue. Is one of the perhaps one of the most touching scenes that I have ever read in comicdom. Mm-hmm. It was where the specter took Guy up to the roof and had him interact with his father, and oh. you being able to capture. Guy being able to make peace with his father was just amazing. And as we saw in Chuck Dixon's run in yesterday's Sin storyline, Guy had a horrible upbringing. And that before the end of your run, you were able to have Guy in this sort of DC uh, mystical way communicate with his father and have them resolve the conflict that had been going through and had obviously been eating at Guy all this time. To, To see that conflict resolved was just amazing in the book and i i thought that was uh, again another testament to your incredible writing well i i really do seriously appreciate that and i know at the same time i can speak for chuck when you mentioned on that with his that means a lot on a lot of different levels and the fact and i'll i'll be honest with this isn't sour grapes talking or anything like that but uh Chuck and I, both as writers, uh, more times than not, have been tagged as, okay, tough guy writers. That's all they do. That's all they want to do. That's all they can do. Mm. And, you know, not very often do you get the chance to, uh, I don't know, uh, make an attempt to show that, you know, if you if you just let me do this, you know, there, there's more to it than that. There's... There is range, and 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 I thank you very much for that for picking up because writing that and, and other things when I'm sitting here by myself, you know, it's late at night and I'm writing that stuff. My goal and hope is that once this is out there and someone else is reading it, someone else will get that too. Someone else will will, will get the feelings and the emotion that I'm getting right then with those characters. And to know that you read it and felt that for those characters as well really does make doing that worthwhile. I mean, it more so more so than the paycheck, as the cliche goes. It really does, because when you're you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I, I hope someone else enjoys this, or I hope someone else gets this or feels this. That's a true reward, and I really really appreciate that. Well, it, it to be honest, it is uh, an incredibly emotional scene, and it's something that anyone who has had a, a loss in the family, or especially a loss of a parent, can latch onto. And 
would really wish that they could have that kind of thing happen. And to see it written so well in the book and see it illustrated so well was just, uh, it, it was, it's a moment that shows that not only do you write amazing action, but you can also do the drama as well. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people, again, overlook uh, in books in the 90s. And this is why I wanted to talk about this, because it is such such good stuff. Well, I really appreciate it. And again, I can attribute a lot of that to the uh, the freedom editorially that, that Eddie and, and DC were giving me at that point in time. And, and that, that's huge. I mean, they, that's not given out so much these days. And then I was, I was there at a very uh, good time creatively to be able to take a, another company's characters and pretty much do what I wanted uh, is, is rare and few and far between now. And, you know, I don't know if that'll ever come back. I mean, I, I really don't at this point. But, um, you know, I think, you know, Eddie and DC for allowing me to do that at that point as well. Major contribution there. You know, when you, you, you take the handcuffs off somebody, they're either going to run away or, or you know, they're going to rehabilitate. I like to think that I rehabilitated. <laughs> so how long, how much lead time did you have um, when it, the time came down and they said it was that the book was about to go away? Um, 44 was our last issue, and I think we also had that last annual. Uh, mm-hmm. That we, when those two things were written, uh, if I remember correctly, I knew you know we knew the door was going to close at 44, and with the annual. So I think around I don't have the issue sitting in front of me, but around 41 when I was working on that, we we usually worked anywhere from three to six months ahead of time. Um, I think that was right around, and to be to be honest with you, we ran into that thing by about issue 40, sales started picking up again. But they'd already announced at that point they were canceling the book, so they really they had second thoughts. They go, well, maybe we'll – it's on the bubble. Maybe we'll let it continue. But uh, at that point, um, they said no. I mean, one of the – I was so happy that one of the issues I got to do was one for, the one where we turned Guy into Gal Gardner. Oh, and that yes. Was, <laughs> that was my – you know, Mark was doing that real uh, image style. And I said, well, this is going to be me getting to poke fun at the company I actually was really working for, which was Image Comics. Creatively, I was getting to kind of poke fun at a lot of stuff that we were doing over at Image by doing that. A lot of people, oh, was that a misogynistic? I said, no, I was making, I was biting the hand that really fed me at that point. <laughs> you know, just having fun. That was, that was what, and I got to do the, which to this day, I don't think anybody else has done not only was it was a great issue to work on for the simple fact, first of all, I got to work with Mike Parabek. Yes. Yes. And I got to do something crazy, which we split that up. I said, Eddie, I want to do half of it serious in real time and then half of it in an animated version of what would happen, you know, in this animated version. And Eddie was great. Let's do it. That sounds like fun. We'll go for it. And to get Mike Parabek, who was such a mm-hmm. sweetheart of a guy, to do that. We had absolutely, and if you really read that issue, we got away with a lot. Oh yes, I so (laughs) I I so want I so want to talk about this because there is so much 
you know, sort of political jabbing and just windows. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, obviously about Olivia Reynolds. Yep. And I love the fact that the animated style is in the same sort of animated style as the uh, Superman and the Batman Adventures. Yep. <laughs> and I would have paid cash money for a Guy Gardner warrior series, even if it were just a one shot off on the <laughs> Superman or Batman show, because that was the and, and, and again fun. It oh. is just so much fun in an era where everything was serious and grim and gritty, and uh, there was this hyper reality, hyper reality, reality of violence. That there could be a comic book that could have both sides of that, had the fun <laughs> and had the cartooniness, and just it was so glorious. And sadly, it was one of the kind of one of the last things that Paraback worked on. Yeah, uh, you know. In a, a, he was he is definitely missed but that that is a incredibly oh, just we fun had, read. we had such again dc and eddie eddie just said yes have at it and it was just we knew the issues you know we knew the book was getting canceled at that point so it literally was you know the uh, uh convicts running the uh the prison at that point. <laughs> i was just Oh, and I mean, I can remember, to be honest with you, writing that script, and as I was writing it, I'll, when I write, I always act out what everyone says, you know, out loud. I'm sitting in the room by myself just to make sure that the dialogue close. <laughs> For must have been a week or two after that, I drove my wife nuts. I was talking in an animated Guy Gardner voice. Everything <laughs> she would say, I would just look at her and go, hey, that's peachy. <laughs> she was going, what's with this peachy stuff? And finally, you know, because uh, to be honest, we've been married, you know, 26 years. She's read maybe, oh, the hundreds of comics I've done, she's read maybe two. And so I had to make her go back and read it. And she didn't quite, because she's not into pop culture, she didn't quite read it, but she at least knew why I was saying peachy all the time. And I love the fact that the Guy Gardner animated one doesn't even throw a punch. He does, <laughs> he does nothing in there. He doesn't blast. But see, again, Brilliant. this makes my day because... You got one of those little things that we, you know, that I wrote in there, and I, I, you get it. That makes it so worthwhile to have somebody even mention that. I appreciate. That. Well, no, it's it, it really was subversive and fun and just uh, a pleasure to look at. And Parabex art and Campos's art in there was just uh, outstanding. It was a great melding, and it's something that, yeah, I don't think. DC or any real comic comic company has ever done bef- again, so uh, yeah, it was just uh, we had point. a blast. And and to be honest with you, I'm just so disappointed even to this day that and, and this isn't you know coming from any person that none of that stuff's been collected just so other people possibly out there would get to enjoy and see DC comics before the handcuffs were thrown on. Mm-hmm. I know you had mentioned on your uh, on your website, on the Flying Fist Ranch website, mm-hmm. that you would really enjoy to have a showcase yes. of, of uh, issues 20 through 44 and maybe the annuals published. And I think that would be no. I think that would be awesome because I think if there is one thing that detracts from the Guy Gardner books in this time was sometimes I think the coloring was a bit dark and muddy and it kind of obscured the artwork. So we a were showcase... still working on that cheap paper. Yeah. To, yeah, and so yeah. I think a showcase would, you know, just uh show the, you know, the finished finished pencils or the finished inks and that would just be glorious. I think that Oh, would... it would it would be a blast. I mean, you know, uh, 
Uh, I would just love for – there was a few uh, – the issue I did with Aaron Lepresti, I uh, believe mm-hmm. – uh, gee, I can't I think, remember the – Was that uh, – I think it might have been 40. I know I know which one. It was yeah. the one where they fought Gorilla Grodd. Yes. There I got to, to finally write one of the supervillains that I've always loved in the DC Universe, Aaron – just had that wonderful style. He would have been perfect on Guy Gardner. Mm-hmm. And, and I got to bring in, at the time I was working with Tony Daniel uh, at, at Todd McFarlane Productions at an Image, we were also doing a book called The Tenth, and I had to beg Eddie, let's get Tony to do the cover. He goes, going, now who is he? What's he done? And now, you know, Tony's got a great career at DC where he's been doing Batman and this and that, and Eddie was the one that, you know, brought him back over for all that stuff. So I was glad that happened. But that was a fun issue to do because, again, even though it was serious with Gorilla Grodd and stuff, still we had guys. Mother, we had bits of humor in there. Now, again, I try to tell people not slapstick, but just lighthearted stuff, which, which I hope made you like the like the characters. You know, that was well. The one thing I liked about that issue, especially, was that the monster hunters actually got to do some work. Yeah. You know, the thing is, unfortunately, because it was a Guy Gardner book, Guy was, you know, front and center most of the time. But I'm glad to see that the secondary characters got some more. And I think, you know, had the book continued on, we would have seen a lot more from the secondary characters from Guy. If if I ever get the chance, uh, I've written a Bawana B story that was showed up in uh, the DC Holiday Special, uh, I think it was a year or two ago. And but if I get to bring back Bawana Beast like I want to. Trust me, Buck Wargo and the Monster Hunters are going to be his supporting cast. Yes. <laughs> and I've got all that written out, worked out. And, again, there's a character that um, I, I'm serious. I think a lot of fun can be had. Mm-hmm. A lot of good fun. Let's put it that way. Now, uh, you, we had to finish off, of course, in issue 44, which yep. not only brought back uh, Mitch Bird, but also brought back Major Force, who uh, Guy had finished off in the Capital Punishment storyline. And I think this is uh, essentially your testament or your your love letter to the heroic ideal of Guy Gardner. And, it's a mission statement. Yeah. You, you guys nailed it again. Uh, I, I'm not kidding. It's it's like that night that I sat down and wrote those issues. It, it, it's like I'm, I was writing them for you all because – it's like you guys are in my head, and that means the world to me. That really does, seriously. Well, it's great because throughout the book, the wonderful thing about it is Guy doesn't give up. He's fight, He's powerless. He he he's used all his powers in taking on the Rogues Gallery, and he's just fighting major force with nothing but fists and fury, and he doesn't back down. He doesn't give in, and it's it's glorious all the way up to the end when Major Force violently just rips through his chest and rips his heart out and essentially kills Guy, but he's reborn. The the whole Voldarian thing, he's reborn. Yep. And even then, not until the very end, Guy is still doing what you set out for him to do and fighting as a warrior. He's not pulling guns out of his arm. He's not yep. doing this. Until the very end, he... Uh, he just fights him and it's it's glorious it is just amazing well thank you when, when mitch and i were working on that issue and mitch got the script he goes and mitch if you if you ever talk to mitch mitch sounds just like sam elliott the actor 
And nice. he's got the big mustache, and, he go, and he's sitting there going, well, Bo, you think they're going to let us, this kind of violent, I'm all for it, you think they're going to let us do it? And I said, well, Mitch, I said, it's our last issue, <clears throat> I don't think they care, and I don't mean that in a bad way, yeah. I said, we're going to go out of this, we're going to show Guy as, as the true hero he is, that you, you know, that you cannot even kill him to stop him. I mean, I said, we play in the Valdarian thing to where... That was one of the big reveals of the fact that he not only, you know, you pull out his heart, it's all right. The Valdemar, it regrows. It's the ultimate rehealing kind of thing. And we wanted to, again, do it with no powers, that kind of thing. And Mitch was going, well, yeah, you think they're going to get mad if I show some blood here? I said, nope. I said, we are going to do what Parabek and I did on that issue. I said, we're just going to have at it. And I said, let's just have at it. He goes, I like the sound of that. Prepare for it. And, you know, he, because that is a violent issue, but it had to be to show not only the emotion, but the physicality of what Guy has gone through and and, and ends up transformed in that last panel, too. Well, and it was Arissa always supposed to be the sacrificial lamb? No. No. Um,. To me, she was always supposed to be Guy's little sister and his family. Again, his supporting cast was always meant to be his family. And that was more the, Eddie's idea, you know, let's, let's kill her off. It'll make things more. Because at that point, they were, again, still deconstructing, reconstructing. We don't even know if we're going to bring her back in the G, you know, the Green Lantern Force. You know, they they really didn't think of what they called the older characters, which even though she wasn't old, but you know, was a standard, right. you know, they, their idea when they brought the Green Lanterns back was to bring back all new ones. And, you know, again, forget the past. But, you know, they they didn't. They kept her on. But so, yeah, and that bothered me a lot. I didn't want to Killer, because I, you know, I had lots of other plans for, but it was the end of the book. I knew there wasn't much I could do, and but I wanted her, I wanted her death to count. And to be honest with you, I still had a trap door to bring her back in case something happened. So it was going to be a part of her race goes into um, like a butterfly, like a, a, a right. caterpillar in a, yeah. in a cocoon, and she would come back. And when she came back, she would be uh, actually you know, 25 to 30 years old, full adult, and a lot of these, even... Which the kind of makes even more sense of that bizarre Steve Englehart story. <laughs> uh, well, you actually made something work in that, that bizarre <laughs> Englehart story, my friends. Well, that was, you know, it was... It was, it was she would be brought back. I had plans for what she was going to be able to do when she came back, because if she wasn't going to be a Green Lantern, I had, in quotes, mm -hmm. powers for but also, it, from the which I'm big into the soap opera aspect of comic books, it was going to make a lot of her former peers and teammates uncomfortable because, you know, she actually would be a 25 to 30 year old woman, and you know they would have to start looking at her with different eyes, and they would feel kind of creepy at doing it. And Guy would still be her older brother and protecting her, and here you got Guy, the original. Uh, frat boy, bullheaded, who first wanted to say something nasty, would be in the role of the big brother telling these other guys, you know, hey, put it back in your pants, pal, back off, you know, that kind of thing. So, 
that's also a part you know that I wanted to play up at that point. But you know, I, I was always pushing Hal Jordan and by the face. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been. Although I will first. say that 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 last moment in that in that issue with Hal showing up at the funeral mm-hmm. and Guy giving him the benefit of the doubt, giving him that moment of mercy, and the, them having that second of connection was was a wonderful moment. Well, that was again part of the process to you know, to to let the readers see that Guy was not Guy Gardner jerk; he was Guy Gardner warrior. And to be real honest with you, uh, also had plans for the revisitation to Batman and the One Punch. And mm-hmm. it was not going to you know everyone else would have thought, okay, by this time Guy's going to get One Punch on Guy. No, <laughs> it would have been what I had planned. Uh, was Guy and Batman ended up, you know, would be talk, it would surprise everyone. All the other heroes that were gathered around are expecting trouble. I mean, they're, they they called Superman in. You know, there's Guy and Batman are in the same room. This is not going to be good. They're going to be at Warriors. This is going to be Batman's first time at Warriors because if you saw in 29, he was not in there. Yeah, and so it was going to be his. So this was going to be a, an event on a lot of different levels. But what ended up it being Batman and Guy talking, getting it settled in a very stoic, manly way, without ever throwing a punch, nothing. But they both, uh, he gets Batman both of them to take shots. You know, they're sitting there <laughs> talking. They take a shot. They say a couple more words. They take a shot. Neither one of them. You know, both the underlying thing is, I can drink you under the table. No, you can't. And neither one of them, you know, giving in to that. And, uh, you know, everyone, how many shots have they had? They're like, I've counted 10. How many? No, I don't know. It's 15. You know, so it's this whole thing that would go on. It's Guy, Batman at a table taking shots. And someone's going, I think you guys had enough. Batman, bring another you know, he brings, it's, it's, you know, and him and Guy are just sitting here having this conversation the entire time. And I would have loved, loved to have had that chance to, you know, make that scene happen. Things you will never see in the DCNU. Batman <laughs> <laughs> engaging in a drinking contest. Well, oh, the name of the, the name of the story was play off on the punch and Guy's old haircut. It was going to be called Punch Bowl. <laughs> Um, oh my god I so would have paid to see something like that happen oh uh, this podcast see, like, gets out too far they're going to the they're going to hunt for me with a with a straight jacket <laughs> I don't think were there any other uh things that you want to do you mentioned uh you know the relationship between uh Wonder Woman and Guy you know obviously Batman and Guy getting along together were there any other things that you know you had planned out or that you wished you could have done with the, the character? Well, I got to do it with Superman. Him and Guy got their thing uh, situated, and I got yeah. I was lucky enough to do that. The Batman thing I wanted to do, because I wanted to set it up for other writers, that any time Guy and Batman got together, it was always this push of testosterone between the two. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, they weren't going to be buddy-buddies, but it was a constant... You know, who had the bigger balls, you know, and, and they were always anything they said would that wouldn't be the fights and stuff. It would just be that, you know, grit in the teeth, the two of them. But um, there was all kind of, to be real honest with you, I had all kinds of things with guys supporting cast that um, I mean, 
a lot of them were frivolous ideas, just a little spur of the moment things. But there was a lot of stuff that uh, I truly uh, wanted to do, and I really wanted to spin off Warriors to its own book, to where it would deal with not especially big fights and things like that from other things, but a place for the characters, uh, not just me as a writer, but other writers to use as a place for uh, after event, you know, a couple of the heroes that were in the event to come there and, you know, talk about it and hang out and, and let readers get to know those characters as person people and find out, hey, I really like this. I'm going to start picking up their book. I read what they said in Warriors and what they acted. I want to pick up their regular book. And, and, and that way, far. in the regular book, they could keep the constant floating around in space, constipated, my mouth wide open, we're all yelling at each other. But in the Warriors book, would give a chance for writers to expand on those personalities to where when they pick up the regular books and it's nothing but a galactic event fight to, you know, be able to enjoy uh, and have that emotional investment in the characters that way. That sounds like it would have been just amazing, you know, and... Oh, what, I guess I might as well ask this. If there was the opportunity for, if DC called you up and said, Bo, we want you back to write uh, Warriors, we have an idea for it uh, in the New 52, would you be open to that? Or have you had any uh, working relationships with DC with DC Comics recently? Uh, no, nor working. I think the, what was the last thing I did? I can't remember. Oh, gee. It might have been the Bawana Beast story in the... In the and the uh, Christmas special might have been the last thing. No, I'm still, you know, I see the guys, I talk to them, and they say, you know, it's just, <clears throat> they are, you know, currently, you know, they've got their, their guys under contract that they've got working, and, you know, they're doing that. But, um, no, yeah, if the opportunity to come up, sure, without, you know, without a, a doubt. There's, again, so many characters that I, I love working with, and I just, oh, gee, I'd have to read a lot of the books because uh, I haven't kept up with the 52 stuff that's, that's come out. It's just a stack of, reading material is too much and that's that's what i'm it'd be like uh bo we need you to write an x-men book well that's a lot of books i'd have to read real quick <laughs> even though i've been reading you know uh, captain america and avengers i keep up on those but and again you know it's four dollars a whack basically uh, you know yes. that's, that's, that's a lot of i feel for for other readers as well i mean for years uh being VP at Image and, and, and at uh, Eclipse and, and, and IDW, you know, I basically got all my comp copies for free from other companies. So, you know, <laughs> in the last, oh, five years where I've had to buy them again, it's, uh, it, it, it's good because it makes me appreciate what I do buy, but it also makes me research ahead of time what I am going to spend my money on. Mm-hmm. So what are your, if you don't mind me asking, what are your general feelings on the comics industry at this time, and you know, uh, not only DC, but if Marvel or any of the other companies, IDW and Image, you know, how how do you think things are going for them as uh, uh, as an industry? Um, I've, I've done this in a lot of my Bust Knuckles columns and my Westfield uh, Boology 101 columns. You know, I've hit on a lot of these things. I think right now we've got more diversity than we've had since the 40s and 50s, as far as being able to pick up. Uh, Let's say if it's a licensed book, let's say if it's some something you enjoy, whether it's G.I. Joe Transformers, those are there. If it's a television show, that's there. Uh, superheroes, horror. Uh, the only things that, that are lacking probably would just be uh, straight Western comic. You're not uh, that and soap opera comics. You're, 
not a lot, you know, there's not very many of those, although if you read some of the independent books, uh, you could call that soap opera in a way. But there's there's diversity, which we've never had before, which is great. But, I mean, if, if we look at, at DC Comics, my main uh, problem as a reader is there is not enough, uh, like we mentioned, personality, uh, you know, life. Uh, you smile more times in a day than you frown, and there's there's it's all frowns right now as far as the characters go. Um, that that's one of the things, and that's for the most part. That's not all of them. At Marvel, Marvel does. I mean, Mark Wade's Daredevil is a perfect example of what I think you know a really good comic is. It covers action, but it also ca- captures those personalities, the likability. That's that's a dead-on book. Uh, Hawkeye of yes. Marvel, I think, is another excellent example of a really good comic. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good Marvel. I think has this is all personal. You know, this is I think Marvel has at over on DC as far as artwork can, uh, right now. Their books have uh, consistently better artwork in each issue than DC does as a whole right now, which I think adds to it. Although I think the DC books are colored better than Marvel's because Marvel's content. They're going for a movie look and it, it tends to be a little murky sometimes and you lose a lot of the, the line work from the artists. But, um, I think Marvel is writing, uh, comics and the characters more personally. You do know those characters than DC right now. You've got dark horse, which has the potential I think of all of them out there, whether it's uh, books, whether it's Boom, whether it's IDW, whether it's Dark Horse. Dark Horse has the potential right now to, if they wanted to do a small superhero line and start something out, I think they could do it and make a success of it. I think IDW is very uh, focused on what they are about publishing, which is true diversity, and Boom it follows second on that right now. They are very uh, diversified in the types of books they're doing. I think they just need to get it uh, marketing-wise out to a wider audience because they've got a lot of books that a lot of people would enjoy. Um, part of my monthly fun is going through the Diamond Previews and looking at the smaller publishers and looking for that hidden gem that I might have missed so every month I go through there, and I always make a point to uh, buy a, a comic or a graphic novel that I didn't hear about only through this, and, and really seek something out. I've had, I got to say, right now I've had more positives than negatives. Um, but, but as a whole, it's good. But it, it's 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 a tougher time right now for new comic book creators to bust into. Um, Marvel or DC than it ever was, just due to uh, contracts and both of them being, you know, very corporate owned. They've always been corporate owned, but I mean now in a, in a major way. Um, but you know, again, with web comics and with uh, self-publishing that you can do, that's also a lot easier than it was when I was breaking into comics as well. So, and that with the internet it makes it, it makes a big difference. But I, I, I still to this day believe that word of mouth is the best advertising anybody can have in comics and with the internet, with podcasts, with blogs, that word can get out there and it can be trusted. And, um, you know, you can discover a lot of really neat stuff that you wouldn't have uh, before then. 
amazing. Well, speaking of uh, word of mouth, is there some uh, projects you'd like to share with the listeners of this podcast, Mr. Smith? Well, um, like I said, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm doing uh, a creator-owned book that uh, uh, it's a turn-of-the-century Western 200 People to Kill that I'm doing at Dark Horse, as a matter of fact with um, Enrique Villagrand, who I did the Winona Earp Yeti Wars graphic novel with. Uh, I just had from Image came out. Uh, it's called Warshaw. It's in the hardback book called uh, uh, Comic-Con. It's six of the best uh, South Korean uh, video artists and artists, comic book artists, mated with, uh, and I mean that, for color-wise, not physically, uh, with six American writers. And I did Warshaw with uh, Rocky uh, Kim, and it is a straight science fiction gladiator type of thing. That just came out in hardback. Uh, I did Mars Attacks Obli- uh, Classics Obliterated at IDW, which I did my takeoff on Jekyll and Hyde with Mars Attacks. And again, it's it's Mars Attacks that I grew up with, which were the the really neat trading cards, and there is, again, a bit of lightheartedness attached to this, so it's not some deadly series, and the Martians can talk so that, for once, the readers can uh, get to know them as well, so I just had those two come out. And then I got, uh, I can't say anything I know, I just got signed up to do a um, comic book based on a television series that hopefully that'll be, I don't know when that'll probably be out next year, and I've got uh, a couple pitches in the uh, in the wheelhouse. So, yeah, things are going things are going pretty good. No complaint. And of course, you can always find um, when Bo is able to speak about these things. If you go to the Flying Fist Ranch website. Yep. FlyingFistRanch.com, and, uh, and then um, I've got my Busted Knuckles column that comes out. You can you know you can find that easy. And uh, Boology 101 which comes out through Westfield Comics, uh, their their site. So those are out every week or every other week. So, uh, And my Facebook, oh, gee, I'm always rattling off heresy and nonsense on that. So, Oh, I I just recently got on Facebook, and, uh, you know, I, I was glad you accepted my friend request, and I love seeing some of the just outrageous posts that you have on there. It's just a <laughs> lot of fun. It's a dangerous place to be bored, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, sir. It very yeah, I put up some. <laughs> That's when the twelve-year-old in me comes out. So it's always if, if it's not entertaining, you look at it and go, "Yeah, Bo really should be locked up." <laughs> That's the best place to have. It. <laughs> I think that should be like the uh, the slogan of Facebook. Facebook, <laughs> when your twelve-year-old comes out to play. <laughs> That would be perfect because that is that's basically what it's like. I, my family, I have to answer to them all the time. Uh, members of the family and people I went to say school with stuff. Well, I'm friends with you on Facebook, but I don't understand any of that stuff you put up there. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I tell them, I said, well, that's 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 mainly for work and and and, and readers and and you know comic book friends. And I said they all get it and stuff, but uh, oh, that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. Well, Bo, it has just been it has been the pleasure of uh, of I don't know how long to have you on this show. Uh, I, I I am so enamored with your writing, and I really appreciate you being able to come on here and talk for a little while about you know one of my favorite characters in Compton. So, well, it was my pleasure, and I, I got to apologize to you guys if I 
got diarrhea of the mouth and sprayed all over you because I can. <laughs> once I start talking, it's hard to shut me up. My in. friend, I just want to thank you so much for what one of the more enjoyable reading experiences I had during the nineties. You guys. Well, I no, I appreciate. I'm serious. Like I said a while ago, I appreciate me sitting there writing those things, and at the same time, you guys uh, uh, being in my head for it. Okay. Along with, I mean, I count Guy Gardner as one of my favorite characters, and to have him treated like you did with such dignity and respect, and turning him into the character that I first enjoyed back when I was a little tyke in the late 60s, <laughs> you know, that Gardner Fox came up with. He was always my favorite Green Lantern. Well, and, you know, I, that's why you will always have a special place in my heart, my friend. Well, I appreciate that because that really does. That, 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 that's a reward within itself with me. I appreciate it. Huh. Well, thank you, everyone, again, for listening to the show. Thomas, thank you for coming on and helping me out with this interview. And uh, an s- extreme amount of thanks to you, Bo, for coming on again. Well, my pleasure, guys. My pleasure. Everyone, we will catch you next Friday on another episode of Just One of the Guys. We'll be back to covering comic books. But until then, everyone, stay safe. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. I was going to ask you, uh, usually when I start off the show, I uh, start off with a little underscored music. Uh, is there any kind of music that you'd like to have to uh, introduce yourself? Maybe well, I some. Would, uh, I, I like the blues. Anything. Okay. Know, I like that kind of stuff. That's okay. Blues. I see. I would have suggested. Uh, I would have suggested some Morricone myself. Yes, uh, I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking Ennio Marconi, something from the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I tell you. I tell you what would be. I, what I would like, and I, I actually got it on my iPod, and it comes up, you know, in my random shuffle. Mm-hmm. And the old best—I can't think of the exact the classical piece, actually, mm-hmm. and I can't think of the exact name for it. But it's the same music that, speaking of Sam Elliott, that they played when he do would do those beef commercials. Every Thank time you. you bring up Sam Elliott, Mr. Smith, I, we I I do a, a 
another podcast with my my best friend uh, uh-huh. Burns, called Better in the Dark, and we have a running gag on it that every film would be um, improved by one of of three things, and one of them is there'd be a little box in the corner where Sam Elliott would explain the plot to you. <laughs> I, I got to agree with you there. <laughs> he'd be eating a steak and just go like, well, this is just a load of bullshit. <laughs> all right, guys, I'll let you all go. You have a good weekend. You too. You bro. as well, Thanks. my friend. You as well. Adios. That wasn't so bad. Now was it, Sean? Oh, my God. That was amazing. You did it. Like I said, man. I had your back, and we were just going to have fun, and that's what we did. We did. Oh, oh, that was so, so much fun. I I wish this was a video chat, because all you would have seen was this huge grin on my face throughout the entire, the entire conversation.